Skynet, Vicky, or Hal 9000. Remind me who Vicky is. iRobot. It's the, the supercomputer that c- controlled all of the robots. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, parameter. Um, what I've been considering is... I like this kind of like Saturday Night Fever shoulder motion that you've got going. This is is a hefty concept, so like hold on to your butts. Look, which which one, which AI do you think has the greatest capacity? To be redeemed. Ooh. Because all three are antagonists within their narrative. It's true. Ooh. That is a good question. Actually, just real quick. Yeah. Like, snapshot of each one. Yeah, so Skynet. Because I could, I like they all <laughs> ring a bell. Sure, no problem. But I'm like, ah, it's I can't not. It's not some. a topic we talk about often, so it's to- that's right. totally fine. And the, and I really like, I dug deep, <laughs> for the most part. I know some of these people are like this is not dug- digging deep, but you know, instead of taking like, you know, the Borg or whatever, like I I kind of mm. branched out from beyond what we've talked about previously. So Skynet. Tra- um, I've done this every time. Transformer. It's <laughs> the Terminator. Terminator. So, right. so Skynet's right. the the supercomputer that's kind of yeah controlled all that. Vicky stands for Virtual Interactive Kinetic Intelligence. So that's from iRobot. So, um, she, if we're gonna use you know pronouns beyond it, um, for a supercomputer, her main concern was, um human safety ultimately but she became obsessive Mm. about human safety because she just looked at humans and she's like you're fragile you're gonna die any second (laughs) (laughs) so she kind of um she she um becomes like way too authoritarian and very controlling um in in an effort to try to protect humanity but just becomes overbearing with it um and then hell 9000 i don't know if you Read or watch Space Odyssey? Okay, no, I yeah. have not. So, like, if you've seen any screenshots with like the little red camera eye looking thing, um, sure. And uh, like, he, it's interesting because the the book. I don't know if the movie gets into this as as much because I haven't actually seen the movie all the way through. But in the book, from what I remember, is like his programming directives end up conflicting with one another in an effort to like mm. kind of serve the crew, but also having to keep information about the, the mission's true purpose from the crew. And so it kind of goes crazy and then so basically quote unquote, evil in some way. So Yeah. So basically the um, robot, the, the like, um, uh, the, uh, I can't, I can't remember the word, but the, the one robot that's on the bridge um, from Wally. That's like the captain's assistant. Yes. Is basically a yeah. direct ripoff thereof. Okay. Kind of, kind of, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Like, yeah. I would say the, the robot from Wally is like a mix of Vicky and Hal in some okay. regard. Gotcha. Um, yep. Yeah. So, though, that's which one do you think could, 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 Gotcha. Okay, I'm cleared up. Alan, you can carry on now. <laughs> um, see, the funny thing is, I whenever we talk Hal 9000, yeah. I always, always mix Hal with the computer from War Games. Yeah. So oh, totally. I always end up thinking Matthew Young, Matthew Broderick, <laughs> no. negotiating with the computer. <laughs> um, the only way to win is to not play. <laughs> I can see where you mix that up with, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, okay, most redeemable. Yeah. You see, like, the one I'm obviously the most familiar with is Skynet, because I'm, sure. I love Terminator. Uh, but that one's hard to make redeemable, because especially if you go through all five of the Terminator movies, like we, or all six of the Terminator movies that we like we most recently did, mm-hmm. it's very clear that it is an inevitable doom. 
Well, that how yeah how the how the narrative sort of like bends in that direction. Yeah, it basically says that we will always be humanity will always be seen as a trash heap, and the computers are going to come in and clean up. And that's basically how nice it's treated. In there. <laughs> and very similar to like the Matrix type of mentality too, right? Yeah. Where if anybody who's bothered to watch the second or third Matrix movies, not that I'm <laughs> recommending that. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's the same kind of thing where the computers are basically like, oh, humans are kind of useless. Let's just turn them into fuel fodder for the rest of us. The end, you know. What, you weren't into like cyberpunk cave society? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I will say I, I'm not like super hardcore down on them. I think <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where the original Matrix movie was so... Um, intense in its philosophical roots and things yeah. that there was no way you could like you can't go up from there right, right? like it's so unique in, it's in terms of its narrative perspective and stuff um i think the 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 second two movies brought the narrative to a logical close and you know carried the story in a logical direction sure. that i think was satisfying in that sense but i know a lot of people are just like ah those movies suck so yeah it's not a hill that's not a hill i'm gonna die on sure is all i'm saying um Okay, so Hal and Vicky. <sighs> Kyle, I'm actually going to ask you to go first on this one. Wow. To change it up. Fair. I've stumped him. <laughs> I've rendered him speechless. Uh, Wonders never cease. Won't God, God do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, man. So obviously this one's kind of a tough one for me because I have like tangential experience. I think the only one um, like I've seen iRobot, I've had the book on my shelf forever in a day, but mm -hmm. it's just been one of those like it's on my list. I'll get to it kind of, you know, books um, along with a handful of other um, Asimov books. But I do like what Asimov has contributed to the world of science fiction and especially getting into like the laws of robotics and stuff like that. I like that he has that kind of established um, system within, within the world and within the narrative kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what makes something like Vicky compelling is it's like, what happens when you take um, the rules to sort of their logical conclusion, right? Yeah. Like if, if a robot or, you know, say even like um, the way Ultron uh, engages with it in, in the age of Ultron film, right? Where he's yeah. like, okay, the point is to save the world. Well, Avengers, you're kind of in the way of saving the world. So yeah. watch me destroy the world in order to save the world. Kind yep. of, you know, like, like very clean, very clear computer style logic. Right. Um, and that's what I think that that kind of framework um makes very interesting and that's why narratives like um the matrix or like irobot or things like that um really work because it's like what happens when computers get to be logical and they don't have that empathic response that humans have mm. to you know kind of restrain them in their well you know and then on the flip side a very thanos kind of like well you know this is a very simple mathematical equation too yeah. many people, not enough resources. Uh -huh. We're going to have to hedge down the people, you know. Um, so I'm going to go with Vicky primarily just because it's the one I'm I'm most familiar with. And even that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, but yeah, all the way around. I think there's a lot of interesting things to unpack there. I think I'm probably going to end up in the same spot as you, Kyle, because it mm -hmm. seems to me that both Hal and Skynet were so military focused that to bring them around to caring uh, protecting the people mm. i feel like that's going to be a hard ai turn mm. and like it seems to run counter to most of their programming yeah i think that's about where i'm going to have to land okay interesting what about you yeah i i think i was wanting to like play devil's advocate and try to like really uh, argue hard for Skynet for somehow. But because <laughs> it was designed as like a, a, you know, a military super intelligence to defend the U S from everybody else. Like, and that if I'm remembering correctly from yeah. the films, any, anything, anything that we've seen that's been designed to 
protect one specific group of people from other groups of people, I think is going to be inherently flawed. Um, and, and it just, that, that concept makes me too anxious. I don't think, like, I think you'd have to completely deconstruct that entire programming. So it wouldn't even be itself anymore. Like, I don't think there's any evolution like from that. Um, Hal, I'm really fascinated by um, the idea of AI having in like artificial intelligence enough to then have that intelligence be corrupted to to become, in a sense, what we understand as "quote unquote" crazy, um, is really horrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Like that is scarier to me than Skynet is. Um, Especially with like the really rational voice that that is carried through Hal. Yeah, like the idea of just like you seem really upset. You should take a a pill and calm down. Um, really, <laughs> like real. It's like some like that's gaslighting from an AI. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's creating. It, it's like asking a pure logic machine a question and then it running it through a random number generator and then kind, that's the response of. that you get. Well, and I think, I think, yeah, yeah. And like to ask an AI to, to participate in subterfuge is like, that's really, that's really compelling. But I don't, again, Mm. I I think you would have to then, you'd have to remove um, from its programming too much of what it, what makes it it. So then again, it's like not, you're not really, really redeeming anything. You're, you're making something entirely different. So I think I'm going to have to agree with you guys on, on Vicky because I think initially what Vicky was built for wasn't necessarily bad because it's been a while since I've watched iRobot that, and then I haven't read the book, but that was ultimately kind of just like a, like a way to reduce crime. Yeah. Like I know that mm. that's like an, in, like we have a lot clearly that we need to work out about the concept of, of crime, but um but I think it's a, it's a concept that there, I have more hope for programming equitably in some regard. Um, I I'm more optimistic about the concept of Vicky, um, and and I that and I think like I can empathize more with the initial intent, um, and how that was like Kyle was saying it was drawn to its logical conclusion in the way that it was programmed. Yeah. But I think with kind of going back and trying to correct, there could be something cool there. Um, so, yeah. Definitely. Well, hello, everyone. This is episode 146 of the MinMax podcast. We hope you all are well. And if you did not guess from the this, this, or that question... We are going to be starting up, and not necessarily a series, but there's going to be a string of episodes yeah. here yeah. that we're going to be talking uh, robotics and AI. We have a special guest joining us next week uh, that is going to be very exciting. Um, we'll we'll just leave that little tease there and just make sure you guys tune in for the next one. Um, Ashley, Kyle, we started having this conversation earlier this week, and Kyle, you had initially brought this back up which was kind of an idea that we'd been kicking around a little bit back when we were in scotland and we decided it was about time to revisit it so you want to tee us up for it yeah totally um so you know again we've talked a little bit here and there about ai um and and you know at some of its various forms and stuff um but we've also kind of kicked around the idea of going a little bit deeper with it talking about some of the um you know, deeper ramifications, getting into maybe some of the theology behind it, um, things like that. And obviously AI has representations in so many um, science fiction narratives that there's just such a broad scope to cover with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, I, I think maybe a good place for us to start here is let's talk about some of our favorite representations of um, AI, but I also kind of want to leave that open a little bit because i have something i want to cheat in here um (laughs) but uh, you know just synthetic humanoids or synthetic um life in a robotic fashion sure um you know what i mean so so what are some of your guys's favorite 
robots. Uh, well, Marvin, hands down, from Hitchhiker's Guide, like it's just fair. Like peak. Any any time a robot is programmed with like a distinct human emotion, like to the fullest extent, uh, it just gets me. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, the idea of a depressed robot is pretty amazing, and it, especially <laughs> with his juxtaposition to to the computer. On the on the ship, just being so helpful and so optimistic, uh, it's like Alan and I in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites is Baymax. Okay, from Big Hero Six, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think again it's that empathic response, and it's. That his brother, they, his brother's whole thing was making a care robot, and to intentionally be able to make a battle triage or just care robot that can identify something that's wrong and try to fix it, mm-hmm. and they just play that out beautifully with the idea of grief and the idea of how that hangs on and how you process that in Big Hero Six. So that's that's one of my favorites, and then the lessons that, um. Oh shoot! Why can't I remember his name? Hero. Uh, yeah. Um, hero learns along the mm-hmm. way with Baymax. Yeah. Well, and what a cool like flip the script kind of thing when he creates the battle chip and then realizes how horribly, horribly wrong that causes things to go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a huge part of of what makes that narrative compelling too. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of mine on a similar note, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the easy go-tos in like R2 and 3PO. Sure. Sure. Um, in Star Wars, who also, you know, have that very empathic um, sort of response, which is interesting because for 3PO, it's very much a, like, again, he, he's a protocol droid. The purpose is to be like a butler. You right. Know? Um, so his purpose is to make sure that humans are happy and, and have the things that they need and, and so on and so forth. Whereas for R2, he's basically a mechanic and then just becomes such a driving force in making sure the universe corrects itself, you know, um, which is just it is just funny to watch how much of an impact R2 has on like everything that happens in star wars right um like from saving anakin's life multiple times to saving luke's life multiple times to just you know so on and so forth um but one of my other faves that i've developed in recent years is the robot from the original lost in space series um so i've kind of been going back and watching it just like Whenever I don't have anything else to watch, I'm not going to say I'm like a diehard Lost in Space fan. It's mm-hmm. it's a product of its time for yeah. sure. Um, so it's kind of just a nice like I'll have it on in the background and, and whatever. Um, but the robot very similarly is so sarcastic and so snobby in so many ways. And just I mean, it, it's a classic. Right. So um, and I'm always a sucker for classics <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Um, and so it, I, I've really enjoyed watching and watching kind of how it, it progresses um, as, you know, you get into like midway through the second season where at first it's like it's just a robot. They use it as a narrative device a lot of the time, but then it really starts to develop personality as the the series goes on and you start to see more of the, you know, snobby little remarks and, and things like that um, that totally crack me up. Um the honorable mention, the one I want to cheat in here is I also love, um, not, it's not really AI, but I love, um, the artificer style fantasy robot where it's, it's kind of the clockwork, like Dwemer technology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which I think is really, uh, just like a fun, different take on it because it is a robot like that even lacks programming lacks personality lacks kind of everything Mm -hmm. um but is just driven by magic and i think that's a super fun device in a lot of um fantasy realms and things like that so that's a big one uh for me also another one that i really appreciate and we've mentioned on this we've actually talked about doing this as a book club book way back in the day is um and lecky's uh AI's ancillary justice the ancillary justice trilogy but her introduction of it's almost like a borg-like consciousness except Mm -hmm. 
it well it, it's very similar in that basically they inhabit and overwrite the bodies of the the enemies that have been captured and stored and they plug in are part of this one giant uh hive mind consciousness mm-hmm. and each ship is a part of its own hive mind and the ship itself responds to commands and things but they're programmed beings but the whole story revolves around this one one singular entity that was her whole ship and uh i've mentioned this before but they don't they use the identifying pronoun she for everyone Mm -hmm. so you have no idea genders of anything whatsoever in this book you have to just apply it in your mind how you see these things come across um breck is left on her own and she's gone a little crazy like she's broken and cracked a little and she's known as the computer as the ship that sings like she it's a it's a computer that has learned music and is fascinated by music and has learned to like hum and Mm. retain tunes and so but then there's also this terrifying oh you give me a weapon and i will take all of you out before you can fire a shot will she sing while she's doing it yes that that is terrifying she she'll just (laughs) absent-minded like any sort of weapons practice she can just be doing this and then her response time and everything is so much faster because she is part of the AI right. that she just and then will be done before anyone else can really fire. Hmm. It's terrifying. But her sole goal is to eliminate the Emperor. I'm assuming you can't tell us why necessarily because it'd be too many spoilers. Uh, it is a big spoiler. Okay, then- um, So I won't. But it, it's a really interesting play on this because even the computers... Everyone has heard of Breck's ship was known as the Justice of Torin. Okay. Everyone knows the story of the Justice of Torin, mm-hmm. but it it's gone. It exploded. Okay. So I guess you, you brought up an interesting concept that I kind of want to tease out better because I think this, this idea of like, even, even the phrase artificial intelligence um, suggests some some uh, some expression of sentience yeah, or like independent sentience and so you, your mention of her having gone quote-unquote crazy and we mentioned this with Hal a little bit or I did um because she demonstrates some sort of appreciation in her own way of music seems odd to me only and I'm, I say odd because I haven't read the book so I'm not familiar so but that- I think that's interesting when we pair AI with some form of art and suggests that like they're deviating from programming because yeah. there's like a romanticized notion of like what's happening. See, Lecky really places out interestingly. I'll let you finish your thought, then sure. I'll continue. Well, because I would I would think, and again, this is me not having read the book, that music would just come off as being some sort of mathematical equation mm-hmm. that she's then processing. Yeah. So how how is it expressed in the book? to be beyond just mathematics. So it's basically, it's not that music doesn't exist. It's just the fact that an AI has become fascinated by it. Right, but again, no, I understand that, but it wouldn't wouldn't put me off too much that an AI does that because again, music is math if it's just like torn down to its very basic Sure, but I think where they get into that is the way that they treat uh, the ancillaries Mm -hmm. is that they don't music inherently in some way has some form of emotion wrapped up in it but it wouldn't be able to process that emotion which is why the fascination with it and why it being able to pick up tunes and have memories associated with these tunes like what kind of memories maybe maybe this is my hindrance just having not read anything some of that I'm just trying to tease out that. let me explain let me dig into this a little bit more and why i find this representation of ai so interesting so one of the things that the way that they treat uh breck at justice of torrent it's yeah. the same same yeah, yeah, yeah. ship um they treat her it, it, the crazy is that she she has knowledge that conflicts against her core programming. Okay. She knows something and she knows that she was separated from her hive mind consciousness when it, when her ship, when she exploded, Mm -hmm. she knows why the ship exploded because 
an order and a piece of information was given to her that runs completely counterintuitive to all of her programming. So essentially, Breck is the living representation of cognitive dissonance huh. in AI. So everything about her is just a little odd because, and, and this was starting even before, like this, that we, you learned that the seeds of this go back a ways mm-hmm. and parts of the justice of Torin had been receiving uh, incongruent orders, which was making her programming start to fight herself. So in the way that they represent kind of crazy or not being completely sound of mind is that she has competing data inputs that is causing her to have to basically reroute things mm-hmm. in order to function and the rerouting processes have it's not that it's developed a conscious because she doesn't go they like he doesn't go there they don't develop conscious mm-hmm. they develop a fondness for like characters Mm -hmm. in the way that they respond to things in the way that they go about their duties in the way that their inputs and outputs work they develop fondness there but they don't it doesn't breach that line it's a really interesting depiction of ai it it is i'm just i think maybe i'm overthinking something that's just meant to be fun fiction i just i always get not hung up on but just really I always want to flesh out what a what a writer is trying to express with regard to pairing AI with art or AI with emotion, mm-hmm. and and how they how they understand programming. Not that I am anyone to talk because I'm certainly not a programmer, but uh, how they understand programming in in relation to the arts and to emotion, and how how expression exists within something that's artificial um, and how they wouldn't see how a programmer wouldn't see that as just an extension of themselves. And, the, and I guess the reason I get, I, I'll just say hung up on it. Um, I went to a robotics conference. I think it was just not even a year ago. And it was really helpful in just sort of broadening my understanding of robotics because they had a, an actual robotics engineer and then two artists who just happen to have technical skill who created as an art piece a robot that they they um, anthropomorphized quite a bit and talked about as if it was a real living, breathing entity. And what she was getting frustrated by, um, the engineer, was that she was ha- having to field a lot of questions about robotic emotion and um, you know how how our relationships with with robots will change over time to be as or to be at the level of our relationships with our other humans. And she's like, "What you have to understand." And I think some of these questions lose their. Um, I think she said lose their sex appeal when you when you really break it down like this. Is this concept of is your dishwasher a robot? Yes, it is. It is programmed to do a task for you, and that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Is your refrigerator robot? Yes, it is. It can make ice for you if you want it to, if you program it to do such a thing. We do not have the capacity to make something as elegant as everyone is asking about yet. We won't be, we won't be there for at least 100 years, if that. Um, what you guys are, not you guys, but like she was talking to the audience, what you guys are right. playing around with is this concept of pathetic fallacy ultimately where we imprint our own human emotions on things and we do this all the time i mean like the fact that we can even make pets right. out of rocks is really fascinating to me um <laughs> that's a whole thing right exactly um so she's like so you, your desire to imprint on these things is well and good until you start expecting expecting something in return that it's never been programmed to do and you're you're trying to create ethics and morals and ex- put expectations on things that have no free will. What you have to really more th- be thinking clearly about is are, are the teams that have designed and programmed and built these tools themselves. And everyone forgets about that part and puts all those expectations on the tool rather than the team. Right. Um, and so that's why I always 
get hung up on these questions is like rope the robot's fascinating amazing piece of machinery who designed it and what was their intent right um kyle do you have any thoughts i just talked a lot (laughs) no that's fine i i have many thoughts actually um i think that's where you know obviously that's part of what makes it such an effective storytelling device in so many Mm -hmm. ways is because it you know ai always draws that kind of thing out right yeah where it's always that i mean look at the so many of the robots we listed why did we list them why did we like them well because they they evoked an empathic response from us right like those are like you know that robot makes me laugh in yeah. lost in space or r2d2 is such a valuable part of the the story he's such a loyal quote-unquote robot right mm-hmm. um and so we do imprint and project these these uh types of ideas onto um you know these artificial intelligences and things i think another dimension of this that's super interesting and and i i'm gonna preface this by saying i'm not hundred percent bought into this idea. I think it's a bit reductive. Mm. Um, but if you look at human psychology in a lot, a lot, a lot of ways, it's not so different from programming. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, because if you, if you really get down to, um, and actually this is something I've, I've started doing some digging. Um, I started doing a training this week on, um, uh, like implicit bias or uh um oh what's the word un uh unconscious bias mm. um so just the the you know natural inclination to be biased towards certain things right yeah um and and so I'm not like as deep into this as I intend to be um in the upcoming weeks but um there's just a lot of interesting things when you start to dig into the human subconscious human unconscious um about how ideas form within our minds and how easy it is ultimately in a way to sort of program quote unquote things, um, into the human mind. And so one example, my sister and I were talking about this the other day. Um, and I think one thing that we run into a lot, um, is when you look at the idea of sentience, right. And again, this is more me musing philosophically than it is having a ton of, of background for this. Um, so I don't want anyone to like take me as an authority in what I'm about <laughs> to say. Um, but I, I just think this is an interesting line of thought that I intend to pursue. Um, so if you think about sentience as, you know, okay, I become self-aware, right. Mm-hmm. At some ill-defined point. Um, I, I am, I am aware of myself, which means immediately the first bias that's automatically going to come with that is because I am aware of myself everything else is an otherness mm. right mm-hmm. if, if 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 i have a sense of self then i have a sense of things that are not self right right it's a very hegelian type of concept right um and so as i as i recognize that and recognize that there are things that are not self so to speak um then i automatically have created a bias of, of uh, against things that are not self Right. Because as a self, as something that can recognize that I am a person, you know, um, I am automatically going to have a stake in preserving that self. Mm -hmm. Right. My my sort of first instinct is going to be, well, I I exist. I am a thing. And so I must be a thing that I want to have continue to exist. Right. Because I can't imagine what it would be like to not have that, to not be that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um. So preserving my own sentience, I guess, in a sense, becomes uh, a primary motivation. And again, that means that everything that is not of the self is is potentially a problem. Yeah. Right. Um, and again, I, I'm I'm being somewhat reductive with this, and it's I'm I'm still tinkering with it a lot. But um, I think that becomes such a powerful motivator for how we interact with so many different things. Right. I, I I've kind of had this this thought that I've kicked around for like years and years and years now that I've never really wanted to get into because it's also very reductive and also sounds super sketchy when you put it this way. (laughs) Um, But I would also almost go to the extent to say that relationships become almost an act of manipulation. Okay. And, and manipulation is a very um, loaded term in this sense, because a little bit, (laughs) 
Yeah, making yeah, me totally. Real, no, making I, like, me real like self-conscious in the room right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> because it's, it, I, I just think, again, with that notion of, of the preservation of the self and my own sentience and, and wanting to preserve Mm. Um, you know, myself above all other things. And and this isn't me. I'm, I'm speaking again. Sure. Yeah, phil- yeah, yeah. Philosoph- of course. Philosophical terms for what it means to have uh, self-awareness. Mm. Um, you know, then everything else exists to serve that self. Mm. Um, again, there are so many problems here. I'm not advocating this position. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fleshing it out to, to just kind of think through some things. Um, and so anytime I'm acting in relationship to any other thing, it's to serve, again, that that sense of self. Um, I don't think that that's inherently a bad thing either, because, again, manipulation seems like a really loaded term, um, because when you have, you know, just take the three of us, right? If the three of us all exist within that perspective. Um, we all have that sort of sense of self, sense of self-preservation. We're all going to act in such a way as to preserve ourselves. Ultimately, what that boils down to is a social contract, I would argue. You know, it becomes a, a balancing act of there are now multiple selves that exist in relation to each other. And we're constantly trying to renegotiate the boundaries of what it is to preserve the self, but also recognize that there are other selves Mm-hmm. that are present now right? right and and so because i have a sense of self i can also recognize that there are other beings that also have a sense of self and while i might hold my sense of self as more valuable or more important than the sense of self of others it still exists and i can still recognize that it it exists and that creates it basically it makes us not lonely mm. right like you recognize well i'm not the only self in the universe therefore yeah, so, so I'll let you guys interact with this a little bit because I could just kind of keep going, the I second, think, and Alan the, has a thought. Just from the second point, and I'm just asking, and I'm not trying to be reductive or anything, but isn't that basically, the, isn't what the process that you just described just society? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm getting at. Like, just to put a, to, to put a non-philosophical term on it, like the the agreement that I'm going to do try to do what's best for me, you're going to try to do what's best for you. We're all going to actively say that's what we're trying to do and do that in a way that in somewhat in some ways becomes mutually beneficial to everyone and moves everything well, forward. Well, kind of until you introduce greed because what's best right. for me and what's best for you, we're going to interpret right. that that concept of best wildly Very, differently because people Absolutely. I right. think we've seen especially through 2020 that what people perceive are basic needs has been like vastly manipulated. Um, oh yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah, and that's where just just to no, please. Hopefully, put some clarification to all of this. That's where ultimately I'm kind of going with it. Also, is it's you know on the the pretty happy you know fluffy side. Yeah, that's how society works. That's that's a social contract. Mm-hmm. You know, very. I, I forget who which is which and ex- the exact details, but Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau all proposed these ideas around social contracts and how society forms around those. Right. Um. But yeah, the, then the obvious implication is what happens when that falls out of balance mm-hmm. and one self puts itself above all other selves, yep. right? Now you have modern society. Yeah. And that's where I get with the whole idea of relationships are an act of manipulation because if you're not careful in putting your own sense of self in check, you become that self that tries to manipulate all other selves to serve yourself. And I feel like in that moment, like we've we've just done a big journey through the philosophical timeline, because what we what you're initially proposing is essentially the well, what you're initially proposing is essentially is essentially enlightenment ideals, and then you've just landed in modernism. <laughs> like, right. Let's elevate the the self, myself above all other selves, right. and care right. about and you. In postmodernism, ultimately. Uh, right. And then, but I I right. would say actually when we start getting into the discussion of AI. And that that's when you get into the postmodern is the critique of modernism. Yeah. Not necessarily. I Dougal, our good Scottish friends proposed this idea to me because I was very, I, when Ashley first met me, I, I was a very different person. I um, mean, to be fair, we, we both were. 
but I was super anti postmodern. Like I was you firmly were super anti a lot of things. I was. I hated hipsters and look what I've become, or at least look what <laughs> I became, and then I've become <laughs> something else. I don't know. Um, but there was just so many things that drove me absolutely nuts. But Dougal reframed the idea of postmodernism as a critique of modernism, not necessarily as its own branch mm-hmm. of philosophy. Sure. And that kind of tweaked a few things for me. Like, oh, and, and helped put things in perspective better than just postmodernists deconstructing things to their inevitable end and, li- and basically landing in a place of turmoil because of it. I know I'm very reductionist there, but that's what my thinking was when sure. I was a young 20-something who thought he knew the world. That aside, going back real quick to the concept of like friendships being a method of manipulation to preserve the self, just said in basic terms, imagine if you programmed a robot entirely based on how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Oh, boy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now we're really rolling. That like that is more terrifying to me than Skynet is. Cuz Skynet I can like yeah. I can still understand to some some respect because it was created with self-preservation in mind, so what is it going to inherently become? Something that is ultimately concerned with its own self-preservation, which is exactly mm. what it does. Um but the concept of an AI ultimately deciding, not I mean not even deciding, but being programmed to understand self-preservation as being in lockstep with others in such a way that you you make allies, not necessarily friends, but like have a cohort that respects and responds to you favorably to right to to ultimately um carry out your own desired outcomes again in, including desire in this where it has no place because then it would have to come up with its own motives so then what would the right. motives be um oh this is a tangled web we weave Yes, and we've really gotten into the the thick of it. Um, so to to add something to that, let's look at um, a character like Data from Star sure, Trek, yeah. right? Who who uses the yeah, and and you described this with the ancillary trilogy, also, Alan, of that idea of the AI developing a fondness for other members of the crew, right? And Data describes it like exactly that way, right? He's like, I don't really know how to quantify friendship per se, but I will say that there's a certain familiarity that I develop with you and you having a consistent presence right Mm -hmm. and i think in a very very humanizing way actually and and this is another bridge i think between these two worlds is that that familiarity is very logical in the sense of consistency is is logical right um when you when you get to know somebody, you start to know what to expect of them. There aren't surprises as as often, um, so it becomes a very you know very easy sort of rhythmic type of interaction, right? Like you know, again, looking at our friendship. If I come to you guys and I say something, more often than not, I'm I'm going to have a pretty good sense of how that's going to be received what type of response you're likely to to kind of give. And I'm not going to be able to anticipate exactly what you're going to say or exactly what you're going to do in response to that. Yeah. But there's a, a degree of fam- familiarity where I can take weird, difficult ideas and suggestions, like all relationships are an act of manipulation, right? <laughs> and and know that you guys are going to roll with it and and help me unpack that in a way that's interesting and compelling and, and hopefully makes for good podcasting. But yeah. Um, so, you know, I think in it, in that sense, it's very logical to develop that sense of um, I'll, I'll say fondness, but I don't want to apply that to the AI world necessarily. It's just sure. a convenient term um, that I'll use as kind of a proxy for, for consistency and familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's very critical in, in both realms for, for AI logic Clean logic, consistency is helpful because there are less variables to deal with. 
right? And and granted, if you're a supercomputer and you can compute tons of variables constantly, maybe that's not such a thing, but you're spending less computing power on not dealing with those variables, right? Again, in in human relationships, that can be very similar just in terms of, again, I don't have to worry about offending you guys as much because I have a pretty good sense of where we all stand on a number of things. Right. So that creates much less stress for me personally, um, even though it pans out in a very different way. It's very biological, right? I'm not producing, and this is where my knowledge of neurotransmitters is a little thin, but you know, whichever neurotransmitters are associated with stress and feeling stressed, that the levels of those are going to be reduced when I engage with you guys than it would be if I engage with someone who's a total stranger, mm-hmm. right? And try to broach, you know, difficult topics with them. Um, here's another side of this that I want to bring in that I think will help add something. Um, so one of the things that I did come across this week that I wanted to dig into a little bit more is this um, idea of what's called the availability heuristic, um, which, as I understand thus far, is basically this idea of our brains are likely to draw conclusions based on whatever the most immediately available um, kind of memory or or thought around it is. It, it's kind of that idea of, if I remember it, it must be important mm. um, kind of thing, right? So basically, what I think kind of develops around that is the more consistently we see something, the more readily available it becomes and the more likely we are to draw conclusions around that. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the idea of bias for a second. Right. Um, everybody grows up within a certain context, you know, has certain cultural, um, values and things like that, that are going to be embedded within them as a part of growing up in certain areas and things. Um, and as a part of that, you're going to develop those biases around those things so you know let's say for example um for an absurd example and then i'll get into a more real example um let's say i live in an age 150 years ago where the internet's not a thing um and i've never heard of a monkey before right and i live in south dakota so there are no monkeys anywhere to be found um and i'm going to come across a monkey for whatever reason. Um, you know, I stumble across a monkey. I've never seen a monkey before. I have no idea what a monkey is. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe my immediate thought is, well, I, you know, there are rabbits, there are marmots, there are other, you know, furry, smallish types of creatures um, that have some degree of, of familiarity. So maybe I'm going to brand it as, as one of those types of things. Or maybe I'm going to see it as this is unfamiliar I don't have information about this. It it's again, it's an other thing, you know, that I haven't created any sense of familiarity with. Now I'm afraid of it. Right? Because what I can't quantify that that scares me, mm-hmm. right? And if I if I'm living in this very logical framework uh-huh. of um familiarity creates consistency creates logical comfort so on and so forth. Um then that's going to be scary to me, sure. right? Now let's look at it in the context of something like race, right? Mm -hmm. Where if I grow up in, say, a white family, I'm around white people all the time. The first time I encounter someone of any other race, I see a point of differentiation, right? And I'm probably more likely to notice the unfamiliarity than I am the familiarity, right? Q, just sort of a small fractional subset of how racism starts to form right, yeah. within societies, mm-hmm. right? It's different. I don't immediately understand it to its fullest extent based on what my limited perception of the world is allowing me to to know and understand. And so I branded it as something that's different. Now I'm afraid of it. Sure. And then it snowballs, right? And there's so many, it doesn't even have to be race. It can be gender. It can be any number of right. different things. Anything that's not familiar is scary. Yeah. Ultimately. Well, and I, and I think you touch an important point on why representation in media is so important because even if you are absolutely say, in a hundred percent a space where you are only within like a, a very specific type of culture, um, that at the very least the arts and media then can expose you to something unfamiliar to yourself 
in a space yep. in which you won't immediately jump to fight or flight. Right. And gives and you space to like process. Heuristic, yeah. Yeah. That, that availability heuristic becomes so important based on representation specifically because the more the more I see it, the more it starts to feel feel familiar. It's mm-hmm. not the only thing that I have to to draw on on memory, right? Yeah. Um in, in the same note, if the if the first um well let's let's take it a little out of the the tough, you know, um spheres and let's say I go back to that monkey. Let's say the first monkey I see gets mad and throws poop at me, right? Mm-hmm. Now forevermore, my my most immediate and available memory, and it's a powerful memory because it's a negative memory, right? Is that monkeys are gonna throw poop at me, which mm-hmm. means monkeys are bad. I don't like monkeys. Now every monkey that I see, the most available memory for me is going to be this bad experience of a monkey, right? Right. Again, that's where all these like weird fears and phobia responses and stuff can kind of start to come into play. I mean, like a practical physical example of that is there are particular breeds of dogs that bother people. So like, for instance, blue healers and I have a very difficult relationship because, and I can't show this, but I have scars running down one of my fingers that look real. It looks gnarly because I got bit by a blue healer when I was 19 and that it, like there's all sorts of mitigating circumstances and i know the circumstances mm-hmm. but it took me a couple of years to not see a blue healer and not get momentarily nervous with like okay is this a good blue healer or is this is a badly trained blue healer mm-hmm. and so like that's exactly what you're talking about like my mm-hmm. my focus on blue healers has been forever changed because i got bit mm-hmm. right and it it does work both ways, right? Like my my first dogs were golden retrievers, so every time I have a golden re- or I see a golden retriever, it immediately evokes a more positive response. Also, you know, because I have those memories to rely on of how much I like golden retrievers, or you know, so on and so forth. Um, so it does work both ways. It's just one of those things where negative memories tend to have a stronger impact than positive memories in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which it, I think just makes. Some I'm just I'm I'm going back to to humans for the moment. Some historical instances really compelling. I mean, yep. even even in the case of explorers happening upon N- North America for the first time and tribes greeting them and being like, "Who who are you?" Not even I mean, from what's been described. Not even in fear, but kind of like more curiosity and sort of like, right? You know, that's really compelling because that should have been like a very like that should have been very upsetting in the moment to have people you've never seen before who don't look remotely like you, who have right forms of technology that are unfamiliar to you, showing up on your land. I think you'd have every right to be very suspicious and and very sort of upset. So for for the at least the recorded response most for the most part to be curiosity and interest um is not what seems to currently be the impulse a lot of the time. Yeah, well and I, you raise a really interesting point because Obviously, fear is not the required response. Right, yeah. Right? Just because it's different doesn't mean you automatically have to right. be afraid. And, and I should be clear about that. Sure. Um, I think part of the reason that that becomes the most logical response so often is how often do we come across new things that, you know, all it really takes is once, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if I, uh, going back to my monkey example, even if I've never seen a monkey before that, maybe the reason I'm afraid of it is just because. You know, when I was little, I saw something new for the first time and then something scary happened. Right. Like, mm-hmm. again, it, there there is that sense of, of human programming that's embedded deep down and things are going to happen. You know, again, if you want to talk about psychological development, the, the challenge there is that stuff happens before we are even able to consciously process it. Things that happen right. when we're infants are going to impact how we develop psychology psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even as toddlers and things like that. So these things that we don't even have memories of are going to shape 
who we are and, and how our personalities develop to the extent that by the time we are old enough to engage with our own ways of thinking, we're not even going to know where half of those things came from at that point, right? They're, they're just so deeply embedded within us that there's, there's really no way to, to engage with it. Well, and I think that's why b- both of you bringing up the concept of society and community is so important, especially diverse community, because we have no chance of unpacking and realizing some of that programming that you were talking about without mm. external stimuli provoking yeah, a lot without of that. people challenging exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think therapy is one way to do that, but I don't, I don't think that's the only thing that one should be doing to kind of... Because it's it's one it's one thing to go into an isolated space with one other person that cannot share anything that you say, and so you can kind of just like vent and unload, and there are no consequences whatsoever. It's quite another to right. then try to be actively exercising new behavior to community where there will be consequences, and also the capacity or at least the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation because I don't need to ask, I don't need to apologize to my therapist, you know, when I'm trying to unload or unpack or I start crying or get angry or what have you, you know, I don't have to, to ask their forgiveness for my behavior in that moment, unless say something really goes wrong during that session. Um, But, but I also don't live near amongst, amongst around my therapist, you know, assuming it's being done right. correctly, which is where healthy boundaries are like the hypercritical part of being exactly. a therapist or being in any sort of like mentoring type role. Right. Right. That's why boundaries are so important, because if you break those down, you you muddy those waters. Right. Exactly. When, and just to to briefly bring AI back. AI doesn't need boundaries. It has no concept of infringing upon like a social contract. Right. Which is then fascinating when you bring it, when you introduce AI into a narrative that reflects humanity, because then you have them quote unquote coexisting with one another. Humans need boundaries. AI doesn't have any concept of them. They're either going to naturally reflect the concept of boundaries or not at all. Uh Uh-huh based on their programming. Um, so then with your idea of, of the human mind in some regard, if, you know, to, to try to, to use this analogy of being programmed and then tying it to theology and us being, you know, I'll, I'll bring in, you know, Psalm 139, like the whole concept of being fearfully and wonderfully made, if you know we if we mm-hmm. if we were to to understand that as god quote unquote programming us um what kind of programming are we reflecting um in in the the concept of imago day if that makes any sense like what is what is that pro <laughs> what are we reflecting from said programmer i god um right to the rest of the world and what does that say about god's relationship with humanity and what we are mess necessarily programmed to quote unquote do and i in think the world this comes back a little bit too like your point comes back a little bit to what we were kind of touching into towards the last part of last episode mm-hmm. as well what we believe about god or what we say when we what what we what we think about when we say we believe in god or we talk about theology is so incredibly important because any sort of malformation in the way that we think about god Mm-hmm. If we think about in, that in the way that we reflect the Imago Dei, or we try to embody the Imago Dei, is reflected outward. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so critical that we operate and that we understand our history. We understand the shortfallings of those that came before us, mm-hmm. so we cannot repeat those mistakes, or we can do our best to mitigate repeating those mistakes. I mean, in general, I just think we could all do with being more careful with the pronouncements we make about or on God, you know, like that's fair. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think, theolo- I, well, I think, I think theological conversation has, has grown a lot in some good ways, but in some regard, the, the way I think we feel the need to distinguish ourselves or prove ourselves within theological conversation can sometimes provoke us into arenas that are either 
just beyond us, but we feel self-conscious to admit that to ourselves because we feel like we need to have every answer buttoned up to defend our faith in some regard. Uh-huh. Um, or hubris as, as it leaches into anything, but especially into theological conversation, un- unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think what we say about God definitely can, can condemn or bless us. Um, and in just the concept of ontology. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in general, I think we should all be being more careful not to dampen yeah, this conversation well, at all. Cause I think we're all like really trying carefully sort of parse out these difficult concepts. I don't think any of us are being right. flippant. Right. And I think that, uh, that, that really strikes at the heart of what we're talking about too, because again, it's that idea of the more we assert assumptions about God or, or place these things on God, the more we are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If that's what I believe God is, that's what I will then reflect so on and, and, and so forth kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it is so hypercritical that we challenge those things and that we do get exposed to other perspectives because that's constantly going to shift that programming. And I think maybe that's one of the most important differences between the the human machine, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. and an AI type of machine is an AI can't necessarily rewrite that programming. And to an extent, there are certain things about human programming that we can't totally rewrite either, I think. Mm-hmm. I think those are so deeply embedded in the subconscious that I don't know how much we can even engage with them a lot of the time. Um, but there are so many things that we can also, right? Yeah. And and maybe I'm even wrong. I even as I say that, I'm not sure I I'm buying into that idea that there are things about the human program that we can't change. Mm. I think there are things that are insanely hard to change that are yeah. you're extremely unlikely to be able to change them. But I'm not going to go so far as to say that that's impossible either. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, you know, I think maybe again that's one of the most important. Um, differences between humans and AI is is that uh, capacity to change the program, right? Yeah. And, and so often that's the assumption with AI, and maybe you know AI gets to the point where it it could do that kind of thing too. But then I'm not sure that there is a distinction anymore aside from the material components that are used to create it, right? If right. AI gets to the point where it can rewrite its own programming. Now you you've reached true sentience, right? right? Yeah. yeah, which I think is what makes like data and the Borg so interesting because in that right. in that world building, humanity's achieved that point where they've been able to write programming so elegant that it kind of does transcend right. itself. Um, whereas like a, a lot of the things before it, it's really just an immediate reflection of humanity. Hmm. Well, I think we could keep going. However, I think... I, I, I'm pretty sure we could. I think <laughs> I think we'll call it there and we can come back to this again. Man Persons, we want to hear what you think. I know this was a bit of a heftier one and we're going to head into a bit of a hefty <laughs> series. So next week's episode is going to be... A, it's just going to be fun. Yeah. Um, minmaxpod at gmail.com. Minmaxpod on all the socials except right over slash shoot slash minmaxpodcast. That will be updated at some point. It is on the list of things to do. It is just a, it is just something that takes time and that has not been something we've historically had any of us the last three years. Uh, 773-789-9369 is the voicemail number for voicemails. Three minutes or less. Anything more than that, record it, send it to the uh, email and then we can play it back and possibly respond to it on the podcast uh if you haven't left us review remember we've got the standard review uh bets going on get another nine written reviews and i'll be eating some seriously hot chicken wings and it'll be fun for everyone maybe not as much me but it will be it will be fun regardless. Look, you've been setting yourself up for this for so long. I have. If, and you, I'm if you don't have anything but tears of joy coming out of your eyes, I am going to poison you myself. <laughs> to be fair, I have been training for this too. Like we've been going through to some of the hotter chicken places around here. We went to Hattie B's a couple weeks ago, and I immediately went to the top of Spice Mountain, and it's called the the top of it is called Shut the Cluck Up. 
And it was it was hot. But Ashley has a video. He was like barely sweating. Yeah, I didn't really react <laughs> at all. I was all. so angry because even the cashier, while we were purchasing the sandwich for him, because I just had fries, she was just like, all right, like, okay. And like wrote down the order. And I was like, oh, okay. This is probably going to be pretty good. This is going to be hilarious. And no. I, was, I was waiting for it to be terrible. Yeah. And then I took three or four bites and then Ashley, like literally on the recording, I'll set to see if I can put it in the show notes, just bury it somewhere on my website and then link it in. That basically is <sighs> just like, I mean, it's hot, but I'm not dying. Like, it, this, this is... This is good. It really wasn't until I got to the end of the giant chicken breast sandwich and all of it has started to hit my system that I started breathing. I'm like, okay, I feel heat. I've been gifted the fire of the dragons for a few minutes. <laughs> so I'm still on the search for super hot chicken here in the Nashville area. Yeah, if you've got hot sauce uh, suggestions, please send them our way because uh, speaking of hubris. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, we're just ready. Ugh. We're just treating it like my internal thermometer's broken, and at some point, it will fix itself, and this will come back to haunt me. But I'm gonna enjoy the spice while I can. Anyway, if you haven't left us a review, do that. Uh, we are also on Patreon. Check the show notes for the link. Uh, all sorts of fun goodies there. Friendship Fridays are gonna be starting up here relatively soon. We're just working on getting the finer mechanics of it sorted out while Kyle's finishing his house and we're getting all set up and getting our new network installed properly and all that jazz in the house. So until next week, Mampersands, see you later. Bye.